0: I want to be a billionaire, I ain't getting no sleep Till I see a million every week I want to be a billionaire, I ain't getting no sleep Till I see a billy every week I want to be a billionaire, billionaire I want to be, be a billionaire, billionaire I want to be, be a billionaire, I ain't getting no sleep Ladies hey, and gentlemen, how you doing? Welcome to another episode of Sleep is for Billionaires, the podcast. I am your host, Johnny Vegas. Now today, I have a very special guest on my show. This man is a leader in the entertainment marketing industry for like the past 20 years. Current voting member at the Recording Academy for the past like 15 years and running. You know, currently holds 12 Grammy certificates for working in marketing with various artists we're going to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, Thornell Jones Jr.
1: Thank you, sir. I like that intro. Hey, I did my homework. Man. Hey, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I did my homework on you, man. Well, you always gotta be prepared. Always exactly. gotta be prepared. Exactly, man. I can't be looking crazy out here, man. <laughs> Absolutely not. So how you doing, my brother? I'm good, I'm good. It's been a crazy week. We are, you mentioned the Grammys, we are in the beginning of Grammy season now. We have, um, most people just know the show mm-hmm. in February, right, or January, when they depending on when they schedule it. Um, but there's a whole process that entries have to go through before it even make it to the nominations Mm. before the nominations become the final award recipients so um i actually joined the recording academy in 2000 Mm. and um most the members of the recording academy are people who are musicians singers producers engineers people who actually make the music right? because it's the Recording Academy. It only makes right. sense to have those involved. Um, but then there's support people who can act, who also actually um, can become members of the Recording Academy. Uh, journalists who write liner notes, mm-hmm. uh, designers who do package design, things mm-hmm. of that nature. Back in the day, Executives used to become voting members by like getting giving themselves credits for like hand claps and stuff like that. You know, what? Right. Until the academy was like. like uh, can you still do that? Cause I can clap my way to the top. No, t- no, <laughs> no, no, no. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make a contribution. So, yeah. I I learned pretty early in my career about this this that if I was involved in the packaging design piece of it, which is an, extent, uh, an extension of marketing, mm-hmm. that I could become a voting member. So that's what I did, and by 2000, I got my last two credits that I needed in order to become a voting member. I became a voting member, and, uh, and then the next year I got invited to be on a bunch of committees. Mm. And so I served on a bunch of committees for about 13 years. I chaired the committee for a couple years, like three years in a row, like five, six, seven, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I really learned that whole process. And I tell people that being a member of the Recording Academy transformed my career. Um, I try to tell people, it's just like, you know, people, oh, the Grammys, whatever, like that. And then they get, they're salty when they, you know, when it doesn't turn out the way they want it to. But it's the only peer-voted award. Everything else is essentially a sales award, Mm -hmm. an airplay award, or a popularity contest. This is a peer-voted award. So Mm -hmm. it's other musicians, other producers, other engineer people who are involved in the making of the music who vote on their peers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tell people, you know... It's like the perfect example. Last week, I was um, I was at an event, and uh, I saw Big John Platt. Now, Big John Platt was j- just promoted to be the CEO of the largest publishing company in the world, wow. Sony ATV. Mm-hmm. Big John is like a six foot five black man. Okay. Right. And um, we're cool because we used to sit next to each other in these committee meetings. Mm-hmm. And he saw me and comes across the room and come talk to me. Yeah. And I was going there to kiss the ring. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm just yeah. like, this is, you know, being in the room with Jimmy Jam, being in the room who was at one point the chairman of the recording family. Right. Being in the room with, uh, you know, big A&R like Sean, um, um, like Tubby, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kawhi Prather, um, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And big publicists and... You know, managers Michael Perrin and I—I uh, I met um, Beyoncé's daddy. Sentinel. Wow! Yeah. Okay. Um, um, Matthew Knowles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my buddies in the industry is Michael Malden. Okay. Who's, uh, you know, JD's daddy. Oh, okay. But he was president of Black Music for Columbia uh-huh. and was responsible for signing Beyoncé okay. as Destiny's Child. Nice. So, anyway, being in the room with these people, you know, he just. I just, it just transformed my career. So not everybody will have the experience that I've had, but like, you know, wh- whatever your path and your journey is, you always need a leg up. And to me, this is not supposed to be necessarily an ad for the recording academy, but really, really, because it's something I'm very actively involved in right now mm-hmm. in this season. Mm-hmm. It's very top of mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I really think that one of the reasons why I've been able to sustain my career as long as I have mm-hmm. um, is because of my relationships, and a lot of them stem from my experience in the, with the Recording Academy. No, that's awesome, man. Like I said, I was interested in
0: uh, joining as well. I was looking through their requirements, and I meet a lot of them, you yeah, know. You do. So, so I just want to make sure that I can get in. So I'm gonna go through that process as well. And hopefully, since I know you, you know, I got a shoe in. <laughs> well, you know, I... you know what it is.
1: It's just you no know, having somebody to coach you through, you know, the the application process, mm-hmm. and making sure that you check in all the boxes and stuff like that. And I absolutely know the folks in national membership and also the regional membership, and cool. it's amazing you know to have been around as long as I have been and some of the people who you met when they've just got in the industry Mm. are now like running things Wow! so like you know the the executive director of the Los Angeles chapter of the Recording Academy Academy is Mm. a woman who was an assistant in A&R Epic in 1998
0: Mm. and
1: you know I that was like her first job in the industry and that's my girl yeah yeah, Right? (laughs) so I was like yeah Yeah, okay and I like it's really cool to see people come in, plant their feet, plant their seeds, water their seeds, mm-hmm. and watch it flourish and grow. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a interesting it's an interesting um time. It's an interesting time. Um shit, I'm be candid. I'm like the last year of the baby boom generation. So mm-hmm. they, at one time I was like, oh, baby boom, right? Yeah, and yeah. Then yeah. I, Generation X come, I'm, oh I'm Generation X, right? Yeah, yeah. And now, like, you know, the millennials come and like starting to run things, and I'm like, you see, the thing about this is there is a tendency for people to put people out the pasture. Mm-hmm. And I uh I've always just felt like, you know, I'm vibrant, I'm creative, I'm I'm vital. You know, why would I ever want to put out the pasture? So One of the things that I do that takes up actually quite a bit of my time Mm -hmm. is I'm an instructor in marketing and other music business stuff at Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Nice. And uh, when I was uh, head of marketing for Hidden Beach, uh, my boss would always say to me, because I used to deal with the interns, Mm -hmm. have you ever considered teaching? And I would be like, no. No. <laughs> Mostly because there's this adage that float that's floating out there that I will say is not true, uh-huh. and they say those who can do and those who can't mm-hmm. teach. Right. And I was like, so basically, you want to put me out the pasture? Right. You, go, you know, well, when back in the day we used to do it this way. I'm like, no, no, that's no, not going to be. Yeah, it's a new day and age, right? right. So yeah. I put, so I was like, never wanted to teach, and then I started thinking about it, and I was just like, you know, I think I have something to offer, so. I started, um, once again, Recording Academy. Mm-hmm. I ran across a, a colleague of mine who used to do a r admin for Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. And I met her because we served on the Grammy Committee together. Right, And um, she told me that she was the uh, chairman of the music business program at MI. Mm-hmm. Now I knew about MI because we used to source interns from MI at the label. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, you know, I, I think I'd like to teach a class. Mm. So we had coffee over the holidays, and I didn't hear anything from her. And then one day, I got a call. <laughs> she was like, yeah, The call. Yeah. She was like, Hey, um, you still interested in teaching? I was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, Okay. Uh, well, there's only one. And she said, Well, it's digital marketing. Okay. This, this, this. this. I was like, I can do that in my sleep. Mm. And then she says, okay, there's only one catch. And I said, what's that? She said, it starts next week. And I said, oh, really? So (laughs) so we rushed the paperwork, everything was cool, everything, and I literally started teaching that class like six days from when I spoke to her. And it's now been like almost four years. Congrats, man, that's so dope. And after like a year, a little after a little, maybe not, a little under a year, I was asked to actually write the marketing curriculum for the associate's degree program. Oh, so it's five levels of marketing and social media. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it and I kind of uh, used my marketing methodology which I call the six channels. Yeah, And I framed it out over six quarters so you understand the methodology, the framework, the methodology, and the specifics. We kind of drill down on each of the six channels. And so there's a, it's interesting. I don't think the students really get it in the mm-hmm. beginning. And especially the idea that there's five marketing classes, they used to say, Why do we have to take five marketing classes? At because the there's, end, levels. there's <laughs> levels, and because, because marketing is a very broad thing, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not just a thing. People usually think in terms of marketing as tactics. It, in corporate America, mm-hmm. when you say marketing, a lot of times, it's just equivalent to advertising. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's the marketing they do. It's right. advertising. We're going to place these ads and, you know, be targeted about where we place these ads, and that's going to constitute our marketing. Mm-hmm. Whether it's advertising to the trade, the industry, or advertising to consumers. Right. But that's what they do. Right. Right. Marketing is so much broader than that. Mm. Right. So here, are my students talking about what? why do we do? So much marketing, and at the end. They have come to me and said, "Okay, we get it now." Wow! So we do a like a mini kind of like preliminary marketing plan, level one, mm-hmm. and then they learn all this other stuff, and they come back and they do a more robust marketing plan in level five, mm. and then they and so then they understand. And I'm sure at level one they're going like head is spinning. What is all this stuff? Yeah. And at the end, they're like, "Okay, now we understand how all the pieces fit together." Exactly. So it's really really cool to see the the light bulbs go off. Yeah. So I do I really I really do enjoy teaching, but it it was it was something that I came to just kind of like, you know, understanding that I've always had this you know, mentoring gene or this this thing about, you know, you know, kind of, you know, coaching mm-hmm. or, or guiding people or uh I was always an old soul. Mhm. Even Dang. as, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I see that. When I was a kid, though, like I would, my my, my mom's family's from South Carolina, and so my dad, he was actually uh, in grad school when we were kids. So mm-hmm. during the school year, we were with him, and in the summertime, we would go down to um, South Carolina to be with my my mother's family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so they had us in a Head Start program, and the bus would come pick us up. And you know, a little know it all. Mm. My grandmother tells a story about how I used to, I used to. <laughs> just to trying to tell the kids, don't say ain't. Don't say don't ain't. Don't say ain't because it ain't in the dictionary. Yeah, because it ain't in the dictionary, right? Right. And they apparently they tried to beat me up. Oh damn! And my cousin, my cousin <laughs> had to defend me. Shout out to cousin Charles. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I've always been this guy. I don't. It's just who I am. So. Nowadays, you know, it becomes a mix of what I do for my clients and what I do in in, in the teaching. And I see that that's my way to kind of clone myself, if I would, by teaching my framework and my approach to marketing. And at the same time, you know, still being able to work with clients that I want to work with. Right. I definitely feel that's... uh... You
0: serving your purpose, you know what I'm saying? You sharing your gift from God with the world, you know what I'm saying? And creating more of those that seek to do the things you do. So I mm-hmm. think that's very dope and that's very, uh, you know, that's that's amazing. You're doing amazing work, you know, and just keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure it's going to take you on God's path for you, you know? That's a baby.
1: <laughs> okay, we can go way down. The... The interesting thing about that, and your reference about God and spirituality, has a lot to do with why I do what it is that I do, or how I've done it so long. Mm-hmm. Because I know I, that my steps are ordered. You know, I'm, I'm willing to accept that very early on. What my mom was actually killed in a car accident when I was three years old. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's like one of my biggest fears, man. It's well, you know. The crazy thing about it is, I've had a number of accidents. I had an accident earlier this year that could have taken me out, and I just, I just took it as a sign to slow down. Yeah, you know, me mm-hmm. personally, just slow down because um, you know you get out here to Hollywood and you know, or New York or mm-hmm. Atlanta, wherever it is, you're hustling, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, you're just grabbing, grab, 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 yeah. grab, and I realized, you know what? My life is more important than, you know, a random grab. Right, it's more important to be more strategic, mm-hmm. right? Thinking things through and being like, okay, this, this is a more strategic move. Um, so I, um, very early in my career, well, go back, my mom passed. Mm-hmm. And for many years growing up, I, even though my, fa- my grandfather was a pastor of a church, and mm-hmm. obviously my grandmother was the first lady and stuff like that. And when we were down, down in South Carolina, it was, you know, four nights a week at church, whether it was choir, verse, or Bible study, or men's group, or the fish fry on Friday, or the, you know, it was, church was the center of our lives. But, mm-hmm. you know, at one point, um I remember my grandparents came up from South Carolina, and so we came down from New York and had dinner, a big dinner, and one of my great aunts was like, so do you believe in God? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, nope. (laughs) And they were all like, all it was like the table got silent. And they were like how do you not believe in God? Right, right, right. And I was like, well, you know if God was so great, you know he wouldn't take my mom. And so then people were like, okay, we get well you'll understand in time kind of thing. And the truth was, they, 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 they came after my dad too. They were like, how do you teach your children? (laughs) <laughs> and he was like, well, look, I can show them, but I can't make them. Right. So they had to come to that understanding in their own time. So I remember it was a big deal in my family. I was about 16. No, actually, I was about 17.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, I went to college a year early. Mm. I remember writing a letter to my grandmother. I was like, you know what? I just wanted to let you know that I remember when I was younger, I had some doubts. Mm-hmm. I said, but I really do believe in God. That's what's up. So... Um, that kind of light bulb went off because I was a Boy Scout mm-hmm. and I used to go camping. And I, whether I had heard this before, I kind of discovered it myself that communing with nature mm-hmm. is communing with God. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I was in the at the top of this mountain and um, looked out across the horizon. You know, it was so far off you could see the curvature of the earth, mm-hmm. and it was. At that point, I could, I, you know, I got this. I said, "Oh God, we are so small." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We're so mm, small. Very small. Like a speck. Yeah, lift. I was like, "Wow, oh God, we are so small." I said, "Okay, something is bigger than us mm-hmm. that has orchestrated all of this. None of this is random." Yeah. You know, I'm getting chills thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's a fact, man. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So <laughs> when I first got into the industry. I was like, I heard all the stories, the Illuminati, the darkness, the, the, you're selling your soul to the devil, all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, you know, maybe that's all, all true, but I know I'm, to use the, the, the words of the church, covered. Mm-hmm. You know, I know my steps are ordered. I know it's right. covered. So I knew from very early on that I was, that my gifts were going to be used for good. Mm-hmm. I just, I knew that early on. Um when i first got in the industry out here yeah they tried me mm they tried me they tried me they tried the darkness tried me you
0: care to elaborate or you want to keep it well you know? i don't got a name drop no in like well that.
1: okay um i had a Me you moment mm okay i had a, I had a Me you moment i had people who who tried to dangle carrots mm and I was just like, no, not so much. Yeah. And fortunately, I was, you know, I've always like since I told you when I was a little kid, I was all a little smart. Ass. I was a little smart ass. Mm-hmm. So, not necessarily smart ass, but I was definitely really intelligent. Right. And I could see you couldn't sucker me easily, yeah. right? And I'm not easily seduced by balls. I like nice things, yeah. but I'm like, if I can, if I can think through block and tackle, okay, so I do this. That, that, that. There was, there wasn't. I studied economics as an undergraduate, right? Mm-hmm. So I did these cost benefit analysis yeah. and I realized it just wasn't worth it. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> so, anyway, um, when I finally got to New York and I finally was in marketing, and, you, you know, it was once again, it was just like God ordered my steps. And this lady, she was uh, a, uh, a spiritualist, okay. kind of came into my life. And, you know, she had a son, she needed a mentor for her son, and she turned around and was like, mentoring me, right? Mm. And she would, late at night, she'd come to the office and she would burn sage, mm. driving out the spirits and stuff. And she'd go to certain people's office and be like,
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'm like,
1: yep. Yeah, yeah. She wouldn't even know who they were. Right. And and she that's, just felt the vibe. She just felt the vibe and was mm. like, I was like, yeah. She was like, "Yeah, stay away from this one. Mm. Watch this one. This one." Was uh, she right all the time? All the time. Okay. All the time. And I was just like, "Okay, I don't know how you showed up in my life, mm-hmm. but clearly you were meant to be here. meant to be here." Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it was crazy because I started. Okay. I'm not supposed to really have a career on this side of the business. Maybe I'm supposed to, but it wasn't that's not what, I, what my dream was. Well, what was your dream? You talked a little earlier before we started about how you started writing songs when you were 9, mm-hmm. right? So I won a talent contest with a song I, with a song I wrote at the age of 14. Nice. And I was like I, I was just like, "Oh, this is this is this is this is going to be it. I love the crowd. Now I've been in plays and things of that nature, but this was something that I created. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, this is what I want to do. So, all throughout high school I was like that singer songwriter guy, I was, you know, in today's world it'd be like I was like John Legend mm-hmm. sitting there playing and singing the song, right? Yeah. Back then it was I was the Blackberry Manlow. Hey. All of my songs were sad. Hey. And that's because I was carrying all sad the sad. Hits. Sad. Okay. <laughs> but it was you know it was because I had this. I admit, I was, you know, a lot of people thought I was happy. I really had this really kind of this serious kind of, like, demeanor, you know? And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I lost my mom when I was so young.
0: Mm.
1: But when, when I went to college, I ended up studying economics because it was a head thing, but my heart thing was all about music. Right. So I, when I wasn't in class, I didn't make, it was just music, mm-hmm. right? I remember I had a, like <laughs> s- yeah, so I got a, like a C on one of my class uh, in like macroeconomics, and I went to the professor. What can I do to get my grade up? Mm-hmm. Partly because if I only got a C, I'd have to take the class over. Mm-hmm. But partly because I just was that guy. I want to do better. I want to do better. Right. So he says, Thornell, when you're singing on stage at Madison Square Garden, are you in- did anybody? in the carriage just got a C. And I'm like, I will. So that was where I came from. Right. Mm-hmm. So left school, didn't get a job as an investment banker, which was my dream, Mm -hmm. at least at that time, for that lane of my life. Mm -hmm. And I actually ended up going to work for IBM. Now, my dad was an IBMer, so in truth, I probably could have gotten a job there anyway, Mm -hmm. but they really liked me, they saw that I was a musician, Mm -hmm. and I remember the guy said, "Oh." You're a musician? I said, yeah. He says, oh, okay, We well, got the job. I said, for real? He said, yeah, because we find that musicians do really well in this job, because mm. music is math, and math is technical, and we find that musicians thrive in this job. I said, okay, cool, great. And I did. Yeah. I was president of my marketing class. Nice. Um, you know, I was on fast track to be vice president by the time I was 38, mm. and I walked away from it to be in the music industry. The, well, obviously, I don't, you don't regret
0: that moment, obviously no. Not. I
1: don't. And and in fact, I came out here, went to business school at UCLA, and after my two-year leave of absence, they were like, okay, time to come back. And I was like, no. Mm. And I I tried to negotiate into a a role with music companies because what I told them was IBM needed to be a leader in that arena because computers were going to transform the music industry. Right, So it was... After the internet was invented in 1983, mm. I was graduating from business school, or leaving business school rather, in 1989. Mm. Okay? The World Wide Web had yet to be invented, right. even though there was internal networks at companies, but the idea of a World Wide, World Wide web, web had not been invented yet. Mm. That didn't get invented until 94. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the World Wide Web was invented, that began the transformation of things because the culture of the web was the culture of free. Oh, come to my website, and I'll give you free this. Procter Gamble was giving away free boxes of Tide just to come and join their mailing list. Yeah, You know, you go to a website, they're like, oh, here's a new accounting software, you can take it for free, just give me a good review. So yeah. it was culture-free. So what was happening? People were started sharing music files because they were free. They were just out there, right. right? But then there were people who were amassing huge libraries of files. I mean, millions. I know. I mean, consider that Amazon Prime has two million files and there were people who had seven, 10 million files? So they were the okay. (laughs) okay, right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so this culture of free drove this crisis in the music industry Mm -hmm. that I predicted back in 1989. Mm. And then Apple, actually did not develop iTunes. They bought a company, rebranded the software, called it iTunes, mm-hmm. and then took a pole position in the music industry by setting prices and being the conduit and the basically the savior of the music industry, right? Mm. Back in 1989, I was talking about it, that's the position that I wanted IBM to be in. Okay, and they didn't see your vision. And they didn't see the vision. Mm. My boss told me, oh, no, it's all the same. I said, no, it's not all the same. Yeah, right? He didn't see the future. He didn't see, right, exactly. So you have to be able to be able to kind of get at 30,000 feet and to see how things are kind of maneuvering or how this thing way over there in the ocean might is eventually going to come on shore. Now, before you move forward, now
0: that thought process right there, kind of seeing the trend and seeing where it might go, potentially go, how does one acquire that knowledge? Like, How do you have to look at the situation? in order to make that type of prediction?
1: Well, if I frame it in terms of advice, I'm gonna say you gotta read. You gotta read a lot, you gotta be voracious, you know, you have a voracious appetite for knowledge. Mm -hmm. Because if you're just regurgitating and and kind of mimicking what you see in front of you, you won't be able to see the new trends and the things that are coming. in the arenas that may affect your own arena. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, and, and technology is a big part of that. Technology has driven the change in the music industry each generation. Mm-hmm. Consider um, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s we had vinyl. Mm-hmm. And then there was the introduction of cassettes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know. CD. And then CD. Mm-hmm. And then CD gave two downloads. Mm-hmm. And then downloads have now you're streaming, streaming mm-hmm. right? But the only reason why streaming is even possible is due to this 4G, 5G network, mm-hmm. and the fact that you've got this device in your hand. Right. Your, your smartphone, mm-hmm. which is really a computer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is stronger than the computers to put the man mm-hmm. on the moon. Right. Right? Yeah. So you have, you have to be able to see how other things are going to be able to impact your environment. Be a student of, just be an avid learner, an avid. Uh, yeah. Circus so about to knowledge. get some money. Yeah, it, I think it, but, it. But they, yeah, right. <laughs> they have, I, 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 it's funny. I thought that. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's very good. It's payday. right? right? too. Right? Hey. No, that's good, man. Yeah. The no. Check early. The check it early. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I'm definitely. Um, I'm all for being a student of the game, like knowing the history of things and kind of seeing the trends before our time, and then kind of making a prediction going
1: forward. So. I'm all about that, you know? Well, two things. You have to be able to, to know the landscape, both inside your industry and outside the industry. In, in marketing, one of the key things that, uh, that we teach is a SWOT analysis, mm-hmm. the notion of knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and then knowing what your opportunities are and what your threats are. Mm-hmm. So strengths and weaknesses are internal to your, your organization, your, your, your being, you know, your skills, talents, gifts, and the people around you. Opportunities and threats are external. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what, what situations you can take advantage of, what technology might be able to take advantage of. And a threat might be, you know, you know how whatever secure position you're in right now might be eroded mm-hmm. by something outside of you. And so technology is both an opportunity and a threat depending on how you look at it. Right. So... um it's really interesting to be in the streaming era now and see uh, that music consumption is up, mm-hmm. um, but you know we still have to get. Even though we have better, more secure royalty rates, and we just passed the Music Modernization Act. Uh, last week, and uh, that's the one that uh, Smokey
0: Robinson went yes. and smoked for on behalf yeah. of. I mean, right. So, so not to cut you yeah, off, so yeah. in regards to the act being placed in 1972, did, did what he proposed pass in regards to everybody getting paid price in 1972? Yeah, the way copyright law
1: works um, is um, I don't even really know how it got to this point, but recordings that were being Broadcasts that were uh, published pre 1972 were not subject to broadcast royalties. Mm. So basically, oldie stations just could play you know play old music and you know have a, didn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. But you know maybe that was cool when people were dying at 72. But now that we have a l- longer life expectancy and the industry has matured, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that wasn't fair to the content owners and content creators of that older repertoire right and that was only a piece of the music modernization act mm-hmm. but it was important to kind of frame it um, at least that portion of the bill mm-hmm. for, um, uh as an equitable shift for um, songwriters and and uh, so um, it's you know anyway so that, that was, it's interesting you brought that up. Mm-hmm. I think that for the younger people that I talk to, it's more about how um, uh, a codification of a universal kind of streaming streaming rates, because each company has its own um, percentage they pay. Right. And, um, you know, we're trying to kind of balance that out and kind of get to a place where everybody's, you know, paying the same thing. Now, I, I've got to admit, I don't know enough about the act to know all the different provisions in it, mm-hmm. but it's generally conceded as a, a kind of step into the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, and, yes, yeah. Pay us as artists. <laughs> you know, and, and we're still so far behind you know, so many other countries in terms of you know, compensating artists. You yeah. know, in Canada, Especially when artists sample. Like I feel like they should at least pay some type of compensation you know, to the artists that they're sampling from. Well, we get around that a lot here. The people, even content creators like yourself, are... Can be kind of clever about it by framing it in terms of fair use or frame, framing it in terms of uh, promotional f- use, use mm-hmm. and things of that nature um, and you can get away with that when it really is that but you know when once you get into the commercial realm like you you can, I mean the bottom line is if you're not going to create your own source material, <laughs> then um, you have to be prepared to pay whoever it. Right. And, you know, I I work with on, mm-hmm. I work with um, George Clinton and um, his granddaughters Candy Apple Red and um, they're really sensitive to the notion of publishing because George Clinton is like the most sampled not if not first, the second most sampled, mm-hmm. you know artist in history. Right. And for the most part it hasn't been paid for any of it. I oh, know that sucks, man. Yeah. And so I mean not to going kind of, kinda of weigh that down, it's kinda of, but you know, I I've, I love the innovation that comes from sampling and, and and on my way in I, I was in a lift and the and the driver was playing this Spotify uh, playlist called um Jazz Vibes. Okay. and a lot of it was just like like jazzy loops, mm-hmm. you know, with like hip hop beats. It was kind of Jay Dilla. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I like this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was like, okay, okay, just the little Indian kid, yeah. you know, East India guy. Mm-hmm. I was just like, wow. I remember in the summer of 1980, when I was working in in for New York, mm-hmm. uh, the city of New York. I would go around to all these different um, job sites. It was my job to make sure that the students, the high school students, were getting a job training experience. Right, And I stumbled upon these parties in Brooklyn and the Bronx and stuff, mm-hmm. and I'd come in on Monday, and they'd be like, What'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went to this party in the Bronx in the park, and it was cool, and they were like, you like that hip hop stuff? And I was just <laughs> like, yeah, what are you talking about? What's that's your it started. Yeah, man. I was yeah. just like,
0: i oh, see I'm getting told. Yeah, that's where I'm from, I'm from I, the Bronx. From the Bronx? Yeah. we're in the Bronx? Uh, 161st and Morris, and uh, 150 West Burnside. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I am, ones,
1: but... I know 161st and Morris. South Bronx. Yes, yes. South Bronx. South Bronx, mm-hmm. South, South, South Bronx, Bronx. yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, so, yeah, being in New York was like, you know, it was inspiring, and, um, but, you know, innovation through sampling and, and, um, you know, turntablism and things of that nature, it's all part of it. You just have to figure out how, how to make it make sense for the content creators. hmm yeah.
0: Now, yeah, I, I totally agree with that, man. I just think it. it it's crazy because I feel artists should get paid for their music being sampled, but as an artist, you know, who's as- aspiring as well, mm-hmm. you kind of probably not working with the funds that they may be asking Absolutely. for, so you tend to find the loopholes. Like, sure. There was a loophole at, at one point where you, if you sample less than seven seconds, right. you don't have to get clearance, and a lot of artists were doing that. Right. Or you can just ask any producer, you see this beat, I like it, make it sound like this, but not quite, right. so we ain't got to <laughs> worry about it, you know, and boom. So, right. But it's like, the the I think the importance
1: of a sample this is you by the way. Oh it's not D. Okay. Just if you want me, I'll turn I'll turn it off. No, nah, that's all good. I was
0: just making sure yeah, it no, wasn't. I appreciate,
1: important. I appreciate that.
0: But yeah, so um no, I noticed that um yeah, I also in regards to sampling, yeah, I think the beauty of it is the um not, I, I want to use a specific word, the familiarity mm-hmm. of it. You know, when you hear, it, like, oh, that's that old song. Oh, they're killing it? Yes, because right. it reminds you, because it attracts you like that. So I think that's important to keep in a sample. Um, you know, But again, that will require some clearance if you're trying to take it to a grand scale
1: and stuff like that. The, there's always workarounds. There's always rules. And they say rules may be broken, et cetera, et cetera. But the, I mean, I, I there are so many... Examples of people who have sampled and people didn't know where the original sample came from, and so you know you're saying the notion of familiarity. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, okay, that's true. But how about you're you're in a position where the sample is prominent and people don't know where it came from? So I'm, um, mm-hmm. so I mean, I just went to the Beyonce and Jay Z concert, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Fifty five thousand people in the Rose Bowl just blew my mind. I I I'd, ne- I'd never. I mean, I've been to big concerts, but that was like really something yeah. crazy. But speaking of crazy, um, I remember we had a big debate in, um, in one of the committees, the recording county committee committees, um, when Crazy in Love came out. Mm-hmm. Because the vast majority of people did not know that all that intro and horn work
0: mm-hmm.
1: was nothing but a sample of a Shy Light song. Okay. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Right. That's i say. <laughs> that came from a Shirelles record, okay. and when we played the record, I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, I just I fell out. Anyway, that's one of the great things about digging into crates is finding these obscure things that people don't know about, and kind of putting them in a new context and and creating using a sample as just part of your toolkit, right? You know, and the art of sampling is then what we get to be rewarded. There was a time when if there was a sample in the song mm-hmm. it wasn't eligible for a songwriting Grammy. Wow. And they've changed that rule because now people understand there is an art of sampling. Exactly. You know, and it's part of contemporary songwriting. Mm-hmm. So um which I think was great. I thought that was a great change. Yeah, because mostly everything now is, uh, there's not one song I, I can't name off the
0: top of my head that wasn't sampled by James Brown or Quincy Jones music, you know, so
1: yeah, there's okay. a lot. There's a there's definitely a lot, and you got to remember there's there's also two different sides of that. There's the recording,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but then there's the song. Mm, the okay. song is one asset, and the recording is another. Doesn't ne- necessarily mean that the sample belongs to the song. It may only rec- belong to the recording. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to have to know where wh- what it is. is it's is production mm-hmm. or is it the song. song? Right. Yeah. Huh. Makes sense, man.